Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. First, I'd like to thank the elders for giving me the opportunity to preach God's word as a, as a high honor. And I assure them and you that I understand the duty and responsibility. If you have a Bible, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And this morning we'll be in verses 15 through 18. And as you've heard, I will be preaching about the true identity of Jesus. Preaching has a rhythm to it. It's like pitching a baseball or hitting a baseball or executing your offense or even teaching. Many of you have taught. You know, you prepare, you execute, execute, you evaluate, and you repeat. And one of the most difficult things for me, if you pulpit supply, is finding where am I going, where am I going to go. So I want to I begin this morning by telling you how I got to Colossians 1 and how I titled the sermon from something in Mark 8. And this is short because I didn't really know what to do. So I was thinking and praying to the Lord about this, and I was going to have a guy come to my home. Uh, he does work for me through my office, and he was going to do some work at the house. I, didn't, I don't know anything about him personally. I know, he does, I know he does good work, so I said, come on out. And so Mark came out. Mark is not his name. We were standing in my yard looking at my home, some things he was going to repair, and all of a sudden Mark turned the conversation to, to social issues thought that was kind of odd, but we kept talking. And a few minutes later, he said to me, he goes, are you a Christian? And I said, I am a Christian. And I, turned, I attend Second Baptist in Mount Vernon. I'm a Reformed Baptist. So in turn, trying to be polite, I said, well, are you a Christian? He didn't answer my question. Instead, he told me what church he went to. And then he began uh, to tell me what they believed, that they denied the Trinity because they don't use titles that are not in the Bible. They believe in one God, but not three persons. He said, we're an Acts 2.38 church. We believe only baptizing in Jesus' name. And baptism is salvific. And when you come up out of the water, if you are not speaking in a tongue, you are not saved. Then I got the list of dues. You cannot have television. You cannot have internet in your home, but I can in my business. I guess the business internet is pure. So that's, that's okay. And then we have to have no television, we must homeschool, we must dress. And all of these things demonstrate to the, to the world that we have separated from them and that we are indeed saved. It was a wonderful conversation that lasted more than an hour. And the conversation was salty, but it was respectful. Back and forth, each kind of preaching his gospel but yet each listing. The conversation ended because I'm going to see him throughout our work, and I said, we, we both agreed. We hope this conversation can continue. I mowed my yard that day. We mowed five acres, so I had lots of time to ponder and to think and to pray. I was thinking about Mark, and it occurred to me that, like this is novel, that we do not have the true identity of Jesus we open the door to all kinds of errors and sins without even realizing it. 
All the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. Think of the Jehovah Witness, the Mormon, the Muslim, the atheist doing their thing for whatever they think is good or right, yet it is wrong. No matter our conviction, no matter our passion, if we get the object of our faith wrong, if it is not the Jesus of the Bible, it is all in vain. Sadly, many like Mark believe they are serving God, yet the very God that they say they believe in, they reject and they deny, and the consequences are eternal. Now, this brought me to the book of Colossians, the great Christology from Colossians 15 through 20. Section of Scripture is believed to be an ancient church hymn, probably modified by Paul to some degree, is what the commentators tell us, to fit into his thoughts of Christ and what the Colossians needed to, needed to hear as the Spirit directed. Now, the little church in Colossae was, a multi, was facing a multifaceted heresy. They rejected salvation in Christ alone, that salvation required a, a higher wisdom or a higher understanding. Worshiping of angels was part of it, and Jesus was a part of that. There were dietary restrictions and other things. But the main thing was that the most serious aspect is that they rejected both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. In denying his humanity, they viewed him as one of many lesser emanations descending from God. A good emanation like Jesus could never put on evil flesh. They rejected his deity because the idea that God would become a man was absurd. They kind of had an early Gnostic view that matter was evil and spirit was good. The point is they rejected the true identity of Jesus. Now in our day, we face many of the same kinds of philosophies and religion, right? Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing. My scripture says, pause. Then I shifted to Mark 8 and what uh, Conan read earlier because it was fascinating to me when Jesus asked the question, who do men say I am? They answered some John the Baptist, some uh, Elijah, some one of the prophets. They all got the true identity of Jesus wrong. So Jesus says to them, well, who do you say I am? And you know, that is the question of questions. It is the most important question we can ask, and it will certainly be the most important question we will ever answer. So I will not in any way attempt to define Jesus, His word will, because the Bible is essentially a book about Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says this of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it is a significant passage that should powerfully remove any needless doubt or confusion over the true identity of Jesus Christ. I have five reasons for preaching this sermon, five purposes, and they are, they're, really, they're really brief. I want to tell you this so you kind of know where I'm going. First, and by the way, I, I, I don't believe that I'm going to tell most of this group anything new, but it's a great reminder, and I'm going to share with that what kind of happened to me. First, First, we can truly only be saved and have our sins washed away and be reconciled to God if we believe in the true biblical Jesus. Secondly, we cannot be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, into the Jesus Christ of the Bible, if we do not know Him, if we do not believe in Him. Thirdly, how can we preach the truth of Jesus Christ if we don't know it? 
Instead, we will be preaching the truth, the untruth of another gospel, which is not a gospel, and there will be, we will be subject to God's wrath. There'll be eternal consequences for that. Fourthly, I'm here to remind us, and I say this in plural, I'm preaching to myself, to be prepared and equipped for battle. Because life is a battle. I'm so self-assured when I'm talking to my family about all biblical things or I'm in Sunday school or my small group. I'm pretty heady when Joshua's preaching. But when you get punched in the face by a very dogmatic, passionate, convicted unbeliever or someone who doesn't believe correctly, how's that go for your world? Well, suddenly I found myself staggering like I had just gotten punched. My mind kind of went blank and I had to regroup. It made me think, you must know Jesus. And I don't mean just know Jesus here. We must know Jesus intimately in a relationship that is so close, we are always ready to defend the faith or to go on the offensive for Jesus. Think of this scenario. Mothers, would you be ready to defend your child if somebody was spreading false accusations about him and her? I think you would. And husbands, would you be ready to defend your wife if someone was attacking her character? I think so. So how much more should we be prepared to defend our God? Fifthly, fifthly maybe the main reason, I'm just here to encourage you and to exhort you that what you believe to be true of Jesus Christ is right and true and it will not be in vain. So my hope this morning is this sermon will reassure you as to who Jesus is, that we will rejoice in who he is and the fact that he has graciously made himself known to us and maybe, maybe, just maybe, you'll even have a, an arrow or two to put in your quiver. If you have Colossians 1, please stand. And I am going to read to verse 23, and I'll begin in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Excuse me. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated in, in hostility in your mind, doing evil things, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed into all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul,
became a minister. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We're going to do six things this morning. In verse 15, we're going to look at Jesus as God. In verse 15, that Jesus is sovereign. In verse 16, that Jesus is creator. In verse 17, that he is eternal. In verse 17, that he is sustainer. And in verse 18, he is Lord. I just thought of this this morning. I'm, I'm, one thing with my Bible reading, I, I, I don't like to think about reading my Bible and then later I come back in the day and I can't remember what I read. Am I the only one that does that? Well, I've been wanting to try to study my Bible a little more purposely. And uh, I was just thinking about two things that I found that I, that I want to do. And I think this is a lot of this has stemmed from my conversation with Mark was this, that when I read something, how is God drawing me to him? When I read a passage, what is God teaching me about what to read? And then secondly, how can I use this to proclaim him, to defend him, be on the defensive for him? How can I use that? So this morning, let us see what God is teaching us about himself and how can we use that in proclaiming and defending the gospel. First, Jesus is God. There in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Well, I want to look at the word image the word here is the same word used in Genesis 1.26 where God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. It is akon, the Greek word. It simply means that something looks like or represents something else. It's like a, a reflection in a mirror or a very close resemblance. Well, F.F. F. Bruce, a commentator and theologian, writes that image here conveys a twofold meaning. First, as in Genesis 1.26, it means a likeness like an image on a coin or a mirror-like representation, Christ being the image of God reflecting his source. Well, secondly, unlike Genesis 1.26, it also means manifestation, with the sense that God is fully revealed in Jesus. It doesn't denote just a mere likeness or a mere resemblance. It conveys the meaning that whatever God is, Jesus is. Jesus, as the image, affirms his deity. He is the exact representation of God, and all of the attributes of the eternal God rest in Jesus Christ. John Calvin writes this about the image that Jesus uh, displays. He said, let not the word image is not used of his essence, but as a reference to us. For image, for Christ is the image of God because he makes God in a manner visible to us. For in Christ, he shows us righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, in short, his entire self. We must, therefore, not seek him elsewhere. For outside of Christ, everything that claims to represent God will be an idol. End quote. The Colossian false teachers are teaching to attain salvation, you must seek things other than Christ. And so does every false religion and philosophy in our own day. To do so is to commit idolatry at our own peril. For seeking outside of Jesus, out of the triune God of the Bible, is to seek a false deity that we are creating in our own image. So we must be on guard that we, not do, that we do not do such a thing. Even under grace, we are prone to do such a thing. The human heart is an idol factory, right? So Paul writes in Colossians 2.9, For Christ 
all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Paul is saying there is no other God to seek because there is no other God. Now, the New Testament writers write about the essence of God, the essence of Jesus. John in John 14:9 is quoting Jesus, and Jesus says, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus stating, I am the very substance and the very embodiment of God. In Hebrews 1:3, the writer describes Jesus as the radiance of God's glory. And this is referring to Jesus' internal radiance, supremely reflecting the splendor and glory of the Godhead. It's this eternal light that radiates in Jesus, that breaks through the darkness, that keeps the spiritually blind in darkness. He is the light, the light and life. The light of Jesus brings life. This radiance is referring to his deity. The writer of Hebrews then continues writing that says, after Jesus provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. We can only be saved from our sins and truly know God through Jesus Christ. And then Paul writes in Philippians 2.6 that Jesus is the very form or the very essence of God. Again, meaning intrinsically, Jesus has the inherent, unchanging nature of God because he is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and there is no other. And then finally... They also, the New Testament writers, speak plainly to us, not just about his essence. They tell us that Jesus is God. I was once asked that by a Jehovah Witness. Where does it say it? I found at least six quotes. Here's three in the New Testament. Romans 9, 5. To them, the Jewish people, belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul writes to Titus in 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And finally then Peter, in 2 Peter 2.1 says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So from the pens of Paul and Peter, declaring that indeed Jesus is, is God. Do you waver that Jesus is God in any circumstance? And the last thing I want to share, because I think this is important, and this is the longest point, but I think this is important, is this, this consistent teaching passed down by pastors and theologians in the Christian church, generation after generation, that Jesus is God. Two quotes from, from pastors and theologians on the Incarnation, 1,600 years apart. I think it's one of the great evidences of the Bible, the continuity of the Bible. There's nothing like it, and you can trust it. Fourth century church, Father Hilary of Pontier summarizes the Incarnation like this. He said that Jesus did not lose what he was, but began to be what he was not. He did not cease to possess his nature, but received what was ours, yet remaining fully God as he was fully man. 
Gerhard Hardus Voss, the great Princeton theologian in the late 19th and 20th centuries writes, it is not the being of God existing in the Father and the Holy Spirit that assumed her, uh, human nature, but the being of God in the existence of the Son. The second person of the Godhead became man in the fullness of time in order that he be the only mediator between God and man. The representative last Adam, the true Israel of God, and the head of the new redeemed humanity. There is a consistent pattern. Every New Testament author affirms and proclaims that Jesus is God. It is the teaching of the church fathers passed down through the Reformation through now 20 centuries. And it is something that you can trust and it is something that we should proclaim. So there is much to say about Jesus as God. Volumes and volumes have been written. Time does not allow to discuss the fact that Jesus received worship as God from the Magi at the triumphal entry when he walked on water and after his resurrection. Or his miracles. He turned water to wine, calmed storms, cleansed lepers, called the deaf back to life, forgave sins, straightened bones, gave uh, sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. Or that the Bible gives him more than 20 names and titles to reflect his nature, his position in the Trinity, his work on earth on our behalf. Names like Son of God, Son of Man, the Word, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the Good Shepherd, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, to name a few. We can rest assured, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is God. Secondly, Jesus is sovereign. Verse 15, he is the image of God, the firstborn over all creation. The Colossian heresy taught that Jesus was a created being. We've been through that, emanating from God to be worshipped not as God, but as part of angel worship. The word firstborn could suggest that Jesus was a created being. The Arians of the fourth century wrongly viewed Jesus this way and that resulted into the Nicene Creed, which states that Jesus was the eternal begotten of the Father, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Now, I certainly do not profess to be a Greek scholar, and I don't want to get bogged down in words, but I think this is interesting. The Greek word for firstborn is prototokos. It primarily means to be preeminent or first in order. Uh, But I do think this is the point that it's interesting. If, if the writer, if Paul truly wanted to make the case that Jesus was born, the Greek word would be protokistos. That would be a much better choice because its first meaning is created. And it's interesting that that word is never used in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. So this firstborn here, preeminent, the highest in order, has a completely different meaning. So let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. Unlike our Western minds, the Bible times firstborn refers to privileges and responsibilities to sons, the story of the prodigal son, the story of Esau. It's it's not creation, it's about birthright, not birth. It's an honorific title, as one commentator writes, after the son brought everything into being, he became the firstborn over all creation. He was preeminent over it. It's sovereign Lord. That's the meaning here. Sovereign means one who exercises supremacy, to have permanent authority. 
And that's what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Scholar Kenneth Woost writes this. He says, firstborn in Genesis 1.15 refers to two things, priority over creation and sovereignty. By priority, he says, we see the absolute pre-existence of Christ our Lord existed before all things were created, therefore making him uncreated. And since he is uncreated, he is eternal. And since he is eternal, he is God. And since he is God, he cannot be an emanation from the deity of which the Colossian heretics speak. And the second meaning is that Jesus is the natural ruler. As we see in verse 18, he is the head. He is the Lord of all creation. He is over all. He is its sovereign Lord. Commentator J.B. Lightfoot writes that firstborn in Colossians refers to Jesus being the sovereign over all creation. So here, firstborn has a twofold meaning. That Jesus is before all things and he is supreme over all created things because he is sovereign. But I want us to notice that in this passage, Paul doesn't stop here with this whole idea of firstborn. He now gives three reasons that Jesus is sovereign, is the sovereign firstborn over all creation. In verse 16, because he created all things. And then two more in verse 17, he is before all things and he sustains all things by holding them together. Paul is destroying the Colossian heresy and any other teaching that says Jesus is created in some fashion. Thirdly, Jesus is creator. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. The Bible teaches us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth in eternity past was dark, that it was formless and it was empty. God and his majesty and power and authority spoke everything into existence out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Before this, there was no form, emptiness. Consider the power to do such a thing and how I set limits and borders on God to my shame. God declares, let there be light. And it was so. And the history of creation begins. The Bible authors throughout Scripture write in agreement with the author of Genesis. We see the continuity. The Bible, they agree with what is said in Genesis. Yes, God alone is creator of the universe and everything in it. King David writes in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Psalm 102.25, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the work of the, of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. Nehemiah 9.6. I love this verse. You alone are God. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So there is this idea, right, in the Old Testament, God creates everything. He created the heavens and the earth. And then the New Testament writers teach us very specifically that it is Jesus, the only begotten Son, 
who is indeed the agent of creation. John 1, 3, through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's pretty specific. Colossians 1.16 that Scott prayed through and touched on, very specific. Everything that you can see, everything that you can't see, all of it created by Jesus and for Jesus. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 3.9 that God created all things through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.2 states the Son, Jesus Christ, made the universe. So the Bible is clear that God is the creator and that Jesus was indeed the one of the Holy Trinity who did the creating. Now, if I were the main character in the movie uh, Castaway, Tom Hanks, did you all see that movie? Or let's say I was on Gilligan's Island and I read the creation account and I read about what the Bible says about creation, I would never come up with a theory like evolution, never. Or the idea that something else designed and created everything without a creator. It's ridiculous. It would not be possible. Let me close with this point. Because even science sees God. Max Planck is the founder of physics. Pretty smart guy. Nobel Prize winner. He states, According to everything taught by the exact sciences about the immense realm of nature... A certain order prevails, Hmm. one independent of the human mind. This order can be formulated in terms of purposeful activity. There is evidence of an intelligent order in the universe to which both man and nature are subservient. Isn't that incredible? Purposeful activity, independent of the human mind, evidence that there is intelligent order that man and nature are subservient. Dr. Planck is witnessing the hot sovereign hand of Jesus Christ in creation. And it reminds me of Psalm 139, where you can deny God, you can reject God, you can run from God, but you can never escape from God. Let us never fear science. Let us embrace science and let, because God's rules Uh, God's law rules science as his providence does history. This is just but a tiny snapshot, but it leaves us with the central truth that all things are created by Jesus Christ. And we are left with no wiggle room in Scripture. He is the only creator. He's the only agent in creation. And he reigns supreme over it. Fourthly, Jesus is eternal. Verse 17 writes that Jesus is before all things. Now, this is the second reason that he is the firstborn over all. When the universe began, he already existed. Commentator Doug Moo writes that Paul is leaving no doubt. The word before here can only mean pre-existence. There's never a discussion in the Bible about how God became. He's just there. He's just, he's always existed. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, cleared from Scripture, God never had a beginning. God existed in a relationship with the Godhead. While all was empty and formless, the Godhead existed. And they had a relationship with one another. Moses writes in Psalm 90, verse 1, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
Psalm 93, speaking of God, says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The New Testament, the eternal word, the eternal God is manifest in Jesus Christ. John says, In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. The word was is used three times here. And in these verses, it stresses a continual action. He's always existed. The word has always existed. He was in the beginning, meaning he was there before it began. In the beginning, he was with God. In the beginning, he was God. There has never been a time when Jesus wasn't God, and there never was a time when Jesus didn't exist. And Jesus believed this about himself. Oh, Jesus didn't know who he was. Yes, he did. In John 8, 58, just one example, he proclaims before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal existing God. Praying to his heavenly father in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 5, he says, Oh, now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. Not only has Jesus existed from eternity, he is the God from eternity, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who has been in relationship with his heavenly father from eternity. It's hard to deny the Trinity when Jesus is praying to his heavenly father about the relationship they had before creation. Paul is giving a straightforward rebuttal to the Colossian heresy, telling the Colossians that Jesus is the eternal God. He is not created. He is creator and he is sovereign over it all, reigning and ruling su supremely. And we in the 21st century should live like we believe that. So Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. He's always existed as the second person of the Godhead in an eternal relationship with his heavenly Father. Fifthly, Jesus is sustainer. He holds all things together. The second half of verse 17, in him all things hold together. Some translations say by him all things consist or he holds all creation together. And this is the third reason that he is firstborn over all creation, because he sustains it. So what holds the universe together then? It's not an idea. It's not a virtue. It's not a force. It's a person, Jesus Christ. The universe owes its cohesion to Jesus, period. And what I'm going to read you, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand this. But some of you doctors, smart people may. It's incredible, and I did not know this. D. Lee Chestnut describes the puzzle of why the nucleus of an atom can hold together. He writes, consider the dilemma of a nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he has just drawn of the oxygen atom. In this tiny nucleus, there are eight positively charged protons with eight neutrons, 16 particles in total. Early physicists had discovered that like charges repel each other and unlike charges attract each other. I hope I wrote that down right. The entire history of the electronic phenomenon and electric equipment have been built on this principle known as Kalman's Law of Electrostatic Force and the Law of Magnetism. Is there anybody here with me? Dr. Willis, you're shaking your head. Correct me if I'm wrong. When you look at the nucleus, he says something is wrong. Because the unlike charges within the nucleus should destroy it. Something holds the nucleus together. Why does it not fly apart? 
When scientists look at the nucleus, they notice the design, they notice what's in it, and also notice that there is no way it should exist. I'm saying that because that's fa it should blow apart. So physicist Carl Dahmer writes, do we grasp what this implies? The nucleus has no right to be alive, that they should never have been created, and if created, they should instantly blow up. Yet there they are, some inflexible inhibition holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is a secret, and one of those far reserved for nature herself. Science has dubbed the force as the strong nuclear force and have no explanation for why it exists. Science has no answer. And I humbly tell you, I think we do. Colossians 1.17 teaches us that Jesus Christ is holding all things together. Hebrews 1.3 writes, It is Jesus who upholds or sustains all things by the word of his power. Commentator Doug Moo writes, as I close this point, he says, Jesus is the principal cohesion in our universe. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle the nucleus. Gravity would cease to work. Planets would not stay in orbit. It is he who impresses upon creation unity and solidarity, which renders it a cosmos instead of chaos. Yeah, everything else is chaos. We worship a God of order. Jesus is sustainer. Jesus holds all things together. Finally, verse 18, Jesus is Lord. Verse 18 says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Paul writes that Jesus is the head of the body, meaning he is the source or the origin of the body, which is his church. In the ancient world, head carried the idea that the, this is the governing member of the body. Jesus being heads means he's the Lord of his people. He is the locos, the center of the church's unity and order, the source of the church's sustenance and direction. Think about that. He's why we're here. He's what makes us, and he's what directs us. Then Paul writes that Jesus is the beginning, which can be translated the originator. It is Jesus who gives life for the church and gave his life to the church. Then he writes that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and firstborn deals with his resurrection. Because of the resurrection, he is now supreme. He is preeminent. He is of the highest rank. He is Lord. At age 86, Polycarp, the second century bishop of Smyrna, and a disciple of the apostle John, was brought to the Roman authorities in order to confess Caesar is Lord. And to do so would, would save his life. Doesn't sound like that big a deal. But Polycarp refused and was murdered. Church history tells us he was burnt at the stake, inspiring others to remain faithful. Now, it's not really unusual for a Caesar to be called Lord. It's kuros is the Greek word. It means sir or to refer to a master of slaves. But neither of these meanings are in mind when Rome applied it to their emperor. Lord signified divinity when used for the Caesar. Faithful Christian that he was, Polycarp understood that he would be violating the most basic tenet of his faith to declare anyone Lord other 
than Jesus. To do so was, was, to a Roman Caesar was not an option. Only Jesus is Lord, and not even death could move him to compromise. Lord is the most important title for God of the Septuagint. The Hebrew word Yahweh is translated Lord, Kyros, and is quoted throughout the New Testament. And when used in this sense, it conveys the idea of one who is absolutely sovereign. In Philippians 2, 9-11, Paul discusses the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus and calls him Lord in the highest sense. Verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of all. Paul is not saying Jesus wasn't Lord before the incarnation or before the resurrection. He is proclaiming that because of his perfect obedience, followed by his death for our sins and his resurrection, it reveals all the more clearly now that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. The title Lord became much more than a title of honor or a title of respect. To say Jesus is Lord is to declare his deity it's even more than Messiah or Savior. He's Lord of all. Can we see why Polycarp could not compromise that and neither should we? We have no other Lord but Jesus. To say he is Lord with full understanding is to submit to his authority and no one else's. And whether people acknowledge this fact freely or not, one day they will submit to this absolute truth. Because he has been exalted to the highest place, given the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Let me close with this point. In, in verse 13 of Colossians 1, it describes all the actions of the Father and the Son in redemption. And in all these acts, God the Father and through Jesus accomplishes these acts for a very specific purpose. At the end of verse 18, it tells us, so that in everything, Jesus may have preeminence. He has preeminence because he is Lord. The Colossians of Paul's day and unbelievers of our day do not need a higher power. We don't need dietary restrictions. We don't need to worship angels. We only need Jesus. They only need Jesus. In him alone, they are complete as we are. For Jesus is God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the creator of all things. He is eternal in his being, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, who is Lord of all. So who do you say Jesus is? Three brief applications, what we are to do with this. First, as believers, let us contemplate Jesus like we never have. Through the study of his word, through prayer, through the preaching and teaching here at home, wherever you can get good teaching and preaching. I love Dr. Willis listens to a sermon daily. So as John Owen writes, we are gradually transformed into his glory. And then the caveat being, as we grow, we intensely are preparing to engage, to engage the culture. What God has given us, we are not supposed to keep to ourselves. We are to share it with the world. Secondly, we are to defend. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. We are prepared so that we are never caught off guard, never unprepared. We are always ready. And we do so in a way that is pleasing to him because we desire to walk as Jesus walked. We pray that this would generate a fire in our belly. Thirdly, to offend. Instead of always defending, we go on the offensive, preaching the gospel to all who will hear and to any who will listen, engaging the culture. There's all kinds of people engaging the culture. Look at our culture. The culture looks like it does because there's not enough light on the culture. Matthew 28, of course, the Great Commission, all authority has been given to Jesus. And what does he tell us? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Let me close with a quote from John Owen. He says, The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole of creation and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can contain or afford. Without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in the living where he is and beholding his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant contemplation of that glory revealed in the gospel, that by a view of it we may gradually be transformed into the same Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.